Okay, Isaiah chapter 5 was read for us um, a little bit earlier. Can you get your Bibles out? You'll need to be there. Um, Isaiah chapter 5 from verse 8 to verse 30. I'm going to pray for us and we'll have a look. Father, we thank you that, as Mark was saying to the kids, it really is true. Even though your word is ancient, uh, it's what we're reading it comes from over 2,700 years ago. Uh, Father, we thank you that it's relevant, that it's alive, that it's living and active, and that it is the sword of your Holy Spirit who works in our lives to make us more like you. So, Father, speak to us today from your word for our good and for your glory. Amen. Um, I want to start by sharing something with you that I came across on the internet as I was uh, looking around at some stuff. You know how you can have different forums for various things? This was a a forum about, um, well, people talking about their homes and wanting to get advice on what to do for kind of handyman work around the house. Uh, This was posted by someone calling themselves Three Kids for Me. Uh, And she and her husband had moved into their house around about eight years previously. They hadn't done any work on the house and she's writing in this forum to get some advice on how to sort out their issues with the house. So here's how she describes things. Our current home was built in the 1960s and has been added onto and extended before we moved in. It's on a sloping block, has a sauna underneath, which sounds grand, but it's not. It's mouldy and rubbish. Um, I've changed some of the words to make it suitable for church. Uh, There are major problems with the plumbing. It's constantly blocking up, to the point where we've bought our own electric eel thing to unblock it ourselves. All three bathrooms need redoing, kitchen needs redoing, floorboards, painting, gardens. Pebble creating needs doing. Hideous, four exclamation marks. We also have an enormous fig tree out the front of our property on council land and that is pushing up the cement in our front yard and all down the sides of the house. So I need some help. I don't know, one way or another, it sounds as though pretty soon someone is going to need to swing a hammer at this place. Now, whether that is the careful craftsmanship of a carpenter or someone who says, no, things are so bad here, we have to come in with a hammer and smash everything down so that you can start all over again. One way or another, someone's going to be swinging a hammer. What would you do if you were in that house and just say, You know, you had all kinds of resources available. Would you try to renovate what's there or would you just rebuild the whole thing? Try to make something out of the mess or just knock it all down and start all over again? I did a bit of research about knock-down rebuilds and they're pretty popular around Epping, actually. Epping's often listed as one of the places where knock-down rebuilds are really taking off. Um, Here's what you can get out of a knock-down rebuild. A nice, peaceful, wonderful-looking house. Um, Do you want to see the picture of what that looked like beforehand? It's that. So, from that to this. And to get from that to this, someone needed to swing this, the hammer. 
You swing the hammer, first of all, to get rid of the mess, and then secondly, to build something beautiful in its place. Now, I want to say to you this evening that the book of Isaiah is kind of a, a knockdown rebuild story. We saw when we started this series that the book of Isaiah ends with something really beautiful, something really spectacular. You have at the end of Isaiah the new creation. You've got these images of the wolf lying down with the lamb. Uh, you, you have the new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth. But in order to get there, God has to wield the hammer to knock down what's broken. And that's where we are in chapter 5. Okay, So in the story of Isaiah, the knockdown rebuild story, in chapter 5, God is swinging the hammer to level the place in order to build something better. One of the reasons God chooses to swing the hammer is that the people of Judah have allowed good things, things that are gifts from God, things like houses, things like intellect, things like food and wine and pleasure. God's swinging the hammer because they allowed good things to become God things. That's what we see in this passage. And I think, as Mark was kind of alluding to with the kids' talk, one of the reasons this particular passage is so important for us to pay attention to nearly 3,000 years later is that the same things that are an issue here are issues for us. We also take the good things that God gives us and we allow them to become God things. We allow them to become the things that rule our lives. We allow those good things to become the things that we make extraordinary sacrifices in order to get hold of. They're the things we daydream about, wake up in the morning thinking about, pin our hopes on. We also, like the people of Judah, take these good things and we let them become God things. And so just like he swings the hammer in Isaiah chapter 5, sometimes... God swings the hammer in our own lives too to knock down the things that have taken his place. He does it so that he can build something beautiful, so that he can build something better, something more glorious in us. That's what we're seeing happening in the story of Isaiah, this knockdown rebuild. And today in chapter 5, we're seeing the hammer being wielded to knock things down. We're going to look, at, as we take a sticky beak, at two things. First of all, what are the good things that the people of Judah have allowed to become God things? And then secondly, how does God wield the hammer in order to knock those things down? So, the good things. I've kind of summarised this in the passage, come up with three categories here, three good gifts from God that have become God things for the people of Judah. They are property, pleasure and intellect. So if you, you've got your Bible open, have a look at verse 8. Uh, here's where we see Isaiah describing their, I guess you would say, worship of property. But he says it in terms of a woe. A woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left. The people of Judah are wanting to get more and more and more property. They're running after it like it's, like it's the thing that's going to save them. Now, now, one of the things that we need to understand in terms of the, the whole flow of the Bible is that when God took his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, when he rescued them from slavery and took them into the promised land, 
he actually said to them, I'm going to be giving you a whole bunch of good stuff there. Listen listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to give to you, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, uh, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you didn't dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, so when you've received all of these great generous gifts from me, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, God knows how easily our hearts are seduced by things so that we forget him. Deuteronomy is saying, remember that God is God. Remember that he's the one who rescued you. You can't be saved by these houses or this land. They're gifts, sure, they're good gifts, gifts from God, but don't let the joy of the gift replace your delight in the giver of the gift. Guys, can I talk to you for a minute? Um, Can I ask you to imagine how you would feel if you came home with a big bunch of flowers for the one that you loved and you arrive at the door and she takes the flowers from you, she's delighted, she's excited and thrilled and then she ignores you completely for the next 24 hours. Doesn't say a word to you, doesn't even look at you. In fact, she sets up the flowers in a vase, puts a chair in front of them and gazes at the flowers all day long thinking constantly, how can I get more flowers? You wouldn't feel great, would you? The whole point of giving the flowers is about the relationship, about blessing someone. Well, that's how the people of Judah have treated God. He has given them a place to live, he's given them houses that they haven't built. Now some of them are so captivated by the gift, they have forgotten the giver. They have allowed this good thing, property ownership, to become for them a a God thing, to take the place of the one true God who made them and who loves them and who saved them. It's interesting. Here you've got 2,700 odd years ago, people who are chasing after property ownership and investment as if that were the secret to having a successful and fulfilling life doesn't sound anything at all like Sydney, does it? Well, maybe, maybe it does. We know, I mean, in the media all this last week has been about how expensive property is here in Sydney. And we live at a time when our city is obsessed with property investment. Now, not only does that make it hard for people to buy a place to live and drive the prices up constantly... It also means for us, we've got to be aware of this, property investment is held up like a god for us to worship. The the religion of Sydney goes something like this, if you can afford a house, well that's pretty much the definition of salvation. If you can afford a house here, you are set for life, everything is going to be great for you. If you can buy into the market early and make a massive capital gain, you're pretty much on your way to heaven. There's nothing else that you need to do but sit back and enjoy the ride. Now, I want to say owning a house can be a good thing from God. It's a gift. I'm not saying don't own a house. 
But I am saying, I think Isaiah is saying is, be very, very careful that owning a house doesn't become a God thing in your life. Owning houses is the first of these good things, Isaiah says, the people of Judah have allowed to become a God thing. The second one on Isaiah's list is pleasure. And we all know how much we hate pleasure in Sydney. Good food, good wine, entertainment, pleasure in general. They're good things, aren't they? They're not bad things at all. But Isaiah says the people of Judah have run after these things with all their might. And you get to see it in two places. Uh, I'm not going to put these verses up on the screen. Have a look in your Bibles. Verses 11 and 12, there's a pair. There's another pair, verses 22 and 23. And in both of those sets of verses, Isaiah deliberately uh, points out for us what the real tragedy is. He doesn't say the tragedy is that you enjoy a glass of wine or the tragedy is that you, uh, you enjoy going to your friend's place and he- hearing a band play. He says the tragedy is that their love of the good life has turned their hearts away from the living God. So they're so obsessed with the latest vintage and who's got the best party and living their food dream. I don't know how many times I've heard that on MasterChef. It drives me nuts. They're so obsessed with that, they have given up any concern for the things of God. Let's have a look at one of them in particular. So verse 12, Isaiah says, They have harps and they have lyres at their banquets. They have tambourines and they have flutes and they have wine. He's kind of saying they have, they have, they have, they have, they have everything that anybody could ever want, but they do not have regard for the deeds of the Lord. They do not have any respect for the work of his hands. What belonged to them and was given to them when God rescued them and brought them into the promised land, they've let go of that and they've run after to fill their arms with these other things out here. This good thing had become a God thing in their lives. Their pursuit of the good life had pushed God further and further back until they'd kind of tucked him into the back of the sock drawer where no one was ever going to see him again. And we need to be careful of the same thing. He says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Can I ask, what do images like this do for you? Do they have you thinking about where your next drink is coming from? Be careful, be very careful about what has captured your heart. Be careful about whether a good thing has become a God thing in your life. Property, pleasure. Come with me now to verse 21. The third good thing that they had allowed to become a God thing was their intellect. He says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's not that being clever is a problem, it's a gift from God. But he says, woe to those who think they know it all. It's amazing really how closely we resemble the picture that Isaiah is painting here of ancient Jerusalem. 
Isaiah talks about people who think they're so intelligent that they can redefine what is good and what is evil. Happening all the time here. Some of you might have seen a few weeks ago a bit of debate, furor about what's being taught in scripture classes in school. Ban the books, get them out of the classrooms. Column inches devoted in the Herald to how terrible it is that we should tell high schoolers that sex belongs in marriage, that it was dangerous, it was damaging for people. Sounds like a redefinition of what's right and wrong. Isaiah goes on uh, in these verses, he asks us to imagine people who think they're so clever that they just cynically mock God. As if, oh sure God, show us what you're going to do. As if anyone who believes in God is some kind of imbecile. You ever experienced that? In verse 18, he describes these people like they're pulling a wagon behind them. But instead of it being filled with toys, it's loaded up with wickedness and sin. See, when, when we think we're clever, we can use that to justify pretty much anything to ourselves. My kids try to do it to me all the time, justifying the things that they've done. But Dad, it was this and this and this. I know I do it sometimes. Paul Johnson, a famous uh, British uh, academic and intellectual wrote a, a whole book about 20 years ago called Intellectuals that really describes how a, a lot of great 20th century thinkers admitted that a lot of their thought project was all about being able to justify the lifestyle that they wanted to live. Isaiah says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes because God is going to swing the hammer at you. All of those good things that they allowed to become God things, God says he is going to swing the hammer and he is going to smash them to pieces. So let's look at how he does that. First of all, their love of property. Verse 9, he says, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. Then you get their love of food and wine and the good life. Verse 13, Therefore my people will go into exile, their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. He says, you reckon you take pleasure in satisfying your appetite? You reckon your appetite is good? Have a look at verse 14. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. God says, as a result of these good things you've chased after that have made, you've made into God things, I'm going to take them away from you. You will not live in these houses anymore. The grave's appetite will be greater than your own appetite. You'll die of thirst and hunger. He says, you think you're clever, you think you know better than God. Verse 24, here's what happens when people reject God's word. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, for they've rejected the law of the Lord and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Because God is God, he will judge 
those who reject him, those who turn away from him to pursue the good things that should never be God things. God is swinging his hammer in Isaiah chapter 5. And as you look to the end of the chapter, you'll see that the hammer that he swings is, well, we know from history, first of all, the army of Assyria who besieged Jerusalem during Isaiah's lifetime. And then verse 25 says his hand is raised and it's still raised high. Then it's the army of the Babylonians who came and conquered them and took them into captivity and destroyed the city about a hundred years later. And Isaiah says all God has to do is whistle and these armies will come running. God is God. He is so in control of what's happening that all he has to do is whistle and these foreign armies will come and do his bidding, almost supernaturally empowered. So Isaiah says, Not a belt is loosened, not a sandal thong is broken, their arrows are sharp, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Because the people of Judah allowed good things to become God things, God is now swinging the hammer of destruction not because he's vindictive, not, not out of nastiness. He's doing it so that he can build something better, something more beautiful, something more glorious. And we know as we go to the New Testament that that new and glorious thing kind of begins with and grows out of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier though, we need to be aware that God will do the same kind of thing in our lives too. So when you take good things and you allow them to become God things, when you allow them to become the things that rule all of your decision making, instead of God being number one there, when you allow them to become the things that push God and push God's people out to the edges then he will probably start swinging his hammer in your life too. Not because he wants to be vindictive or nasty, but because he loves you. Because he's working on something better in your life, something more glorious for you. And to get you there, he's going to have to swing the hammer and smash out of your hands some of those God things that you're clinging on to. When that happens, from our point of view, sometimes we, can't, we, we don't have that perspective. All we feel is the pain. All we feel are the blows of the hammer. We cry out and say, God, why are you doing this? This doesn't feel like love to me. It all seems pointless. But I want you to see from, from understanding this chapter in the whole of the story of Isaiah that it's not aimless, it's not pointless. This is, when this happens in our lives, it's not like some crazy guy with a sledgehammer running around the house smashing up the furniture. Think of it in, in different terms. Think of it like this. Like the perfect renovator, God is working to a plan in your life. So when you feel those hammer blows, remind yourself of that truth. Say to yourself, oh, it feels like I'm getting struck down, but this is part of the renovation plan. 
when you feel those hammer blows in your life, maybe ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, are there things in my life that I've allowed to become God things? Is that what God is doing now? Is he, is he trying to get out of my, my tight little grasp things that, that I should be holding more loosely with an open hand? Things that I've let become more important to me than God? When you feel those hammer blows, remind yourself also of this truth. Your heavenly Father loves you so much that he gave his only son to bear the ultimate hammer blow. So that if you belong to Jesus, you would never have to feel that yourself. If you find yourself feeling far from God, if you feel as though you're being exiled, remind yourself, no, it was Jesus who was sent into exile for me. Forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. Excluded from his presence, not because of anything Jesus had done, but because Jesus was bearing in his body the sins we had committed. You might feel like you're far from God, but remember, because he was sent into exile, you will never need to be excluded. Remember that Jesus went down into the grave and God raised him on the third day, raised him as the guarantee that God really will complete the renovation work he's doing, both in your own life and across the whole of creation. That's the story we see here in, in Isaiah. It's a knockdown, rebuild story. And in a sense, the, the story of the whole Bible is like that. God tells us when we get to the end of the story in no uncertain terms that he is making all things new. And all things includes me and it includes you. Which means in order for him to make you new, he needs to change things in you. Because he loves us, God will swing the hammer in our lives in order to make way for that new creation. But also because he loves us, he's taken the very worst of those hammer blows into himself. So that when we feel the hammer in our own lives, we can be confident, we can be certain that they're not designed to destroy us. but to renew us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we, um, we're thankful that your word, the Bible, is so relevant and real and it, it's not just facts about things, but it tells us the story of what you're doing in this world and the story of what you're doing in our lives as well. We thank you that when you swing the hammer in our life because of what Jesus has suffered for us already, it's never the hammer blow of destruction but it's the hammer blow of the renovator who's making way for something better, something more glorious. Please help us to keep trusting in you. And Father, we pray that as we feel those hammer blows, we might examine ourselves 
and open ourselves to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we will see one day all that you're doing according to your plan come to fruition in our own lives. And this we ask through Jesus Christ. Amen.